the beginning episodes of a an entire story that spans three portions that is extremely difficult to understand. The story of Joseph and his brothers. In a very basic way, we know that uh, Yaakov raised 11 children at this point and 12 children at this point and we know that Yaakov showed a certain amount of special attention to Yosef and this special attention went in, in terms of what Yaakov taught Yosef all of the wisdom that he had learned in the yeshiva of Shem Ve'ever he gave over to Yosef he treated Yosef differently Yosef had a special garment that uh, indicated the special attention that was given to him and this naturally created all kinds of trouble with his brothers his brothers were jealous his brothers had a certain amount of resentment for Yosef because Yosef actually brought ill tidings about things that Yosef believed weren't right in their behavior back to their father. In addition to all of this, to make the situation worse, Joseph had two dreams. Joseph had a dream that there were 11 bundles that were bowing down to a standing bundle as if to say that all of his brothers would be bowing down to him. He had a second dream that the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to him which was again a demonstration of how he was expressing his being different and special and standing apart from everybody else and this created a lot of hatred and a lot of resentment and it came to pass as the Torah tells us in this week's portion that Jacob sent Joseph out to see the welfare of his brothers and then from a distance they saw him and they started having discussions amongst themselves before Yosef arrived, what should they do with Yosef? So the initial reaction was, let's kill him. And then Ruvain came to the aid of Yosef and said, no, what are we going to gain by killing him? Let's just throw him into a pit. And let God decide what, what his lot should be. Ruvain really intended to come back to the pit after his brothers would leave and to save Yosef. After they decide that they're going to throw him into the pit, they come up with a different idea that better yet, let's just sell him to Egypt and let's get rid of him in that way. We'll sell him down to Egypt, he'll become a slave in Egypt and we won't know from him again and we'll get rid of the problem that we have in our house. This is basically what happens and then the next portion or the next episode brings us to Yosef rising to power in the house of Potipharah and uh, an attempt being made by the wife of uh, Potipharah to seduce Yosef because Yosef is a very handsome individual and Aishas Potipharah, the wife of Potipharah, wants to live with Yosef and Yosef resists this test and after this test all kinds of events begin to unfold his brothers come down to Egypt for food and little do they know that that they're going to uh, have to come on to Joseph in order to be able to get the food and so on and we're not going to deal with that part of it because that really goes into next week's portion of Mikates but essentially what we have in this portion is 
the plot to murder Yosef, the plot to throw Yosef into the pit, and the final plot, which they did do, is they sold him down to Egypt. He was he went down to Egypt. He was he was presented with a moral challenge of living or not living with Aishas Potiphera, and when he finally resists that challenge, and he runs out in the last moment, Aishas Potiphera holds on to her his garment and then turns the story around and says that Yosef was attempting to live with her forcibly, and Yosef is apprehended, and Yosef is thrown into prison. And that's the way the portion of Ayeshev ends. And that's basically, just in a very brief sketch, what goes on in the portion of Ayeshev. And obviously there are many, many questions that have to be asked in this portion. And the most probably the most central question that has to be asked is how do we understand uh, the tribes, the brothers, Joseph's brothers, to to be scheming to do such such um, act in such strong ways and such negative ways against their brother. Yes, it's true. We're all familiar with concepts of jealousy and resentment, sibling rivalry, and all of the rest. But we have to realize that when we're talking about Joseph and his brothers, we're talking about very great people. Let me demonstrate what I mean by very great people. The Medrash tells us that. When uh, and, in, and the Medrash says this in an analogy. The Medrash says if a person wants to um, build a skyscraper and he only puts one beam into the foundation, the skyscraper will fall. If he puts two, the skyscraper will fall. If he will put three, the skyscraper will fall. Until the individual supported the skyscraper in 12 central spots, the skyscraper wasn't able to stand. So too, the Medrash says, though there was an Abraham, and though there was an Isaac, and though there was a Jacob that came onto the scene, the world wouldn't be, have been able to go forward and to grow. The skyscraper of the world and everything that had to be accomplished with the world would not have been accomplished through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, though they were pillars. It needed the, the contribution of the twelve tribes splitting the support of the world between themselves that would make the world become a viable place and a place within which the growth that God wanted would be able to be possible. So we have to realize that when we're talking about the 12 tribes, we're talking about them in terms that are very um, in relationship to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That the tribes were able to accomplish that which Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in their way weren't able to accomplish. So we're talking about very special people keeping in mind that we're talking about very special people, and then we open up this portion, okay? It's true, Jacob did something which was incorrect. You never, even if you see difference in children, and you want to give children different, uh, different nurturing and different attention, depending upon their talents and their strengths and their weaknesses, but you never manifest and you ne never make the attention visible in a way that it becomes a problem for the other children to be able to deal with. That's not to say that every child is dealt with the same way. If a, if a child is born, for instance, and has a tremendous talent for music, so you're going to say, well, I'm not going to give my child the violin lessons because the other three don't have violin lessons, so this one won't get it either, even though he has a tremendous talent. That's nonsense. Of course you give the child the violin lessons. But the point is that one has to be very astute and very clever in the way that we demonstrate a difference, making sure that if it does have to be demonstrated that there are other differences that the other ones will feel that that makes them unique. 
But under no circumstances should it be in this kind of a misbalance where a child can go away thinking, my mother doesn't really love me as much as she loves somebody else, or my father doesn't love me as, as much as somebody else. So that's true. Granted, it was a mistake, and our Chazal the Medrash tells us this. This was a mistake on Yaakov's part. Not what he did, but how he did it with Yosef. It was a mistake. But going beyond that, as much as it was a mistake, and as much as we live with the fact that the tribes were human, but to, say, to, to take it to the extreme that they were ready to kill him, or throw him into a pit and let him die there, so it's manslaughter instead of murder, and then finally to sell him, to sell him down as a slave into Egypt, I mean, it's, 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 it's so out of balance, uh, even for people of lesser stature than the twelve tribes. And for the people of the stature that they are claimed to be, this becomes even more difficult to understand. So this is something that has to be understood, and there's no question that this is the greatest problem in this portion. So I would like to, <coughs> I would like to try to develop a way of understanding this and today is going to be the part one of a three-part series and trying to and going through each portion and what happens in each portion and trying to bring this all together and, and trying to make some sense out of it. Let's begin from the following point. Let's begin at the following point. And there's a lot of deep messages for us in the points that I'm going to be m making, even though we're talking about a story that happened long, long ago. Let's start this way. Jealousy, not all, not all the time, but quite often, it usually has some basis in fact. What I mean by that is that very often when one individual is jealous of another individual, it is because, in fact, the other individual has something that's outstanding. If I look at the other individual and I really don't believe that the other person is different or unique or outstanding in some way, so I say to myself, why should I be jealous of him? He's just a, he's just a phony. He's not, there's nothing different about him. Jealousy is usually based in fact. I mean, if a person is a raving maniac, an egomaniac, and he goes around thinking that he's the president of the United States, nobody's going to be jealous of him. If there is a phenomenon of jealousy, be it the nations of the world of the Jewish people or one individual of another individual, it usually has some basis in fact that there is a demonstration of some form of uniqueness that creates the, the tension of jealousy. And to be perfectly honest, Yosef was very, very different than his brothers. Uniquely different than his brothers. And let me, let me first prove this with a logical argument, and then we'll get into how he was different. But let me show you something which is very, very interesting. How many forefathers do we have? Everybody will answer three. Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. How many mothers do we have? Four. Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, In a certain sense, in a certain sense, we have forefathers, not three. And I'll prove it to you. Because Yaakov, who is supposedly the last father, is the one that is responsible for bringing the twelve tribes into the world. Now, anybody that has even a basic knowledge of Chumash knows that the same way that Yaakov acted as a father to bring tribes into the world, so did Yosef. Yosef brought two tribes into the world. Yosef brought Ephraim and Menashe into the world. So the same way that it was, we understand that Yaakov's mission was 
to build those pillars upon which the world would stand. In that sense, Yosef stands on a basis with Yaakov, on a parallel, on some kind of a comparison with Yaakov. Because the same way that Yaakov established tribes, so did Yosef. Yosef established tribes. Ephraim and Manasseh were two of the twelve tribes. Yosef goes out and Ephraim and Manasseh goes in. What does this suggest for us? This suggests for us that Yosef, in a certain respect, took the place of a father and wasn't simply one of Yaakov's twelve children, but that in a certain sense, Yosef himself was a father. Now, let me, let me, um, let me try to develop this idea. In what way was he a father? What was his contribution? What made him different? Let's try to develop this idea. First of all, we should know that when Yaakov refers, when the Torah refers to Yosef later on, the Torah refers to Yosef in the following terms. If, if all of the twelve tribes would be described as a human being, Yosef is the head of the human being, the actual head of the human being. Yosef is referred to as the head. The Gemara says that on the verse, Ela told us Yaakov Yosef, these are the children of Yaakov, and then the verse says Yosef. So the Talmud says this is coming to teach us that the main child of Yaakov was Yosef. And all everything that happened to the other children was in the merit of Yosef. And the Medrash proves it. The Medrash says because who kept the Jewish people alive in the times of famine? It was only the merit of Joseph. When the Jews went through the Yamsuf, through the Reed Sea, the waters did not want to split themselves. So what did Moses do? Moses called forth the coffin of Joseph that was buried in the Yamsuf until the time that they would leave Egypt. And he called forth the coffin to, to, to rise in the waters. And when the waters saw the coffin of Joseph, the waters split. We say it in the hollow. In the hollow prayers we say, Hayam the waters saw Vayanos, and they ran away. They split. So the Talmud says, what did the waters see? So the Gemara says, Ra they saw the coffin of Joseph. When they saw the coffin of Joseph, they split in respect for Joseph. And then the Jewish people were able to cross the Yamsuf. What's going on over here? The very fact that we see that Yaakov gave over everything that he learned in shame for Eva to Yosef specifically, more than to any other child, says to us very, very clearly that Yosef had to be different. Why was Yaakov investing so much time in Yosef? What makes Yosef different? Let's continue. Let's go on. Let's suggest a little bit more. We know that when Jacob knows that, believes that Joseph is dead, because even though they sold him down to Egypt, but what did they tell their father? They brought back that garment of Joseph that they were so jealous of, they dipped it in blood, they brought it back to Yaakov, and they said, an animal must have devoured Yosef. So in Jacob's mind, Joseph was dead. And no matter what was done, he wasn't able to be comforted. Right? So once the Arachayim says, they all came in, the entire family came in, in a major reunion, as if to tell Yaakov, be happy with what you have, as great as your losses of who you lost. But the verse says, if I don't have Joseph, I don't have anything. Now that's a, that's a big thing to say. If I don't have Joseph, I don't have anything, so I don't care who's in the room. Why? Furthermore, the Medrash tells us that when Yaakov came to grips with the fact that Joseph was dead, or at least he believed that he was dead, 
The Medrash tells us that Yaakov said, when I leave this world, I'm not going to Olam Haba. I know that I'm going to Gehenim. I'm going to hell. Now, that's a very hard, that's coming down pretty hard on yourself. Just because one of your children died in a tragic death, that was no fault of your own. That was no fault of your own. Certainly, Yaakov didn't believe it was his fault. An animal ate up Yaakov. That, he didn't have any inkling that the brothers were involved. So why should he think that because Yosef wasn't alive anymore, that he would be going to hell instead of to Gan Eden, instead of to Elam Abba? Why? What's going on over here? Obviously, Yaakov felt that if Yosef is not here, I haven't accomplished what I was sent to this world to do. Why not? What is, why is Yosef so central to the scheme of things? And now let me explain. <coughs> One more piece of information, which will get us rolling on, the, on what Yosef is all about. You know, Yaakov spent 20 years in Lovin's house, his father-in-law's house. Seven years apiece working for Rachel and Leah, and then an, an additional six years working. 20 years. The day that Yosef was born, Yaakov says, it's time for me to leave and to encounter my brother Esav. So Rashi t- tells us, this was in last week's portion, in two weeks ago's portion, Yaakov tells, the Rashi tells us that, that once Yosef is born, Yaakov says, I don't have anything to be afraid of Esav. Why? Because I am compared to a fire. Esav is compared to uh, a pile of hay, but a fire can't reach a pile of hay or if they're separated. But Yosef is compared to the sparks of the fire. Once there are sparks, I have nothing to be concerned of. There can be a barn of hay. One spark will consume the entire barn of hay. So as soon as Yosef was born, Yaakov turned to his wives and said, it's time to leave. I have nothing to be scared of. Esav, let's go back. Now, obviously, we are being taught something over here. We are being taught that there was a quality that Yosef would be when he would grow up that made Yaakov feel that there was nothing to be afraid of once Yosef was in the world. Now, this wasn't a one-time event, mind you. The the Medrash tells us that in Mashiach's times, when Mashiach will come, when we will go up on the mountain to conquer Esav, whoever Esav is, but when we will go up on the mountain to conquer Esav, the Medrash tells us, Ein Esav nimser elabiyad banel shel rachel. You know who will conquer the mountain of Esav? Only the children of Rachel. Again, Yosef is here. Just like when Yaakov left Lovin's house preparing to encounter Esav, he said, once Yosef is born, I can encounter him and I have nothing to be afraid of. In, it, this will repeat itself in history when we have to go up on the mountain to conquer Esav. It will be the soldiers that come from the descendants of Rachel that will be able to accomplish it. What's special about Yosef? What's going on here? So let's explain this. <clears throat> in order to really appreciate the uniqueness of Yosef, in what way Yosef was unique, very often we, underst- we get an understanding of a man when we see him in crisis. In fact, the Talmud says it. The Talmud says that Adam 
nivdak bekisei bekisei of A person can be, if you want to know a person, there are three ways that he gives himself away. Either with his money, how he treats money or his attitudes towards money. Koso, what he says when he drinks a bit too much. Number three, bekasa, when he gets angry. Now these three things are when the human being is in a form of a crisis. When he to, has to give his money away, it's a form of a crisis. When he drinks a bit too much, he's in a form of a crisis because he doesn't have control. When he gets angry, he's also in crisis. So the Talmud says that if you want to know the test of a person, very often the test of the person is best seen in how he reacts and how does he come to the call of a crisis. How does he come to a call of a challenge? When everything is easy, shmeezy, and when everything is just going geshmirt, and he's a very dignified individual, it doesn't mean a darn thing. That's not what proves that he's dignified. That's not what proves that he has some value to himself. What, does it, what proves the quality of a human being? When he's under fire, when he's being challenged, what does he say? How does he react? Does he fall apart or does he come to the challenge? What does he do? Those are the questions. So if we are to understand Yosef, the way we would be able to get an insight into Yosef is we would have to understand and we would have to try to analyze how Yosef reacted in his crisis. Now, by far Yosef's greatest crisis, his greatest personal crisis, was his involvement with the wife of Aishas Potiphera. So let's get in, into that. When he went down to Egypt, and I want to explain this, okay? And I want you to all put yourselves in Yosef's position, because if you do that, and that's a way to learn, you'll be able to understand something very interesting about Yosef. Yosef goes down to Egypt. <coughs> he's sold down to Egypt as a slave, and he slowly w climbs the ladder of success to the point that he is entrusted with virtually everything in Potiphera's house. Everything. Except, of course, Potiphera's wife. And because Yosef is a very, very handsome individual, and Aishas Potiphera is interested in literally liver, living with Yosef, she goes on a campaign su to seduce Yosef. How long did the campaign go on? The Medrash tells us the campaign went on for one full year. Oh. A whole year. And the Medrash says, Begadim shalav shashachas leilav shamincha. Or begadim shalav shamincha leilav arvis. She changed her clothes from the morning to the afternoon to the evening. There was morning clothes. There were afternoon clothes. There were evening clothes. And, and she tried everything that she could to drag Yosef into a relationship with her. And Yosef resisted. Yosef resisted for a full year. After a good measure of time, and Aishas Potiphera realized that she wasn't getting anywhere with this stubborn Jew, so Yosef figured, we have to try a different tactic. All right. So her different tactic was that she went over to Yosef and she said to Yosef the following, I am very knowledgeable in how to read stars and I can prove to you astrologically that we are meant for each other and that if we will marry each other we will bring great generations into this world and therefore what I am asking you for is not an adulterous 
uh, act, but what I'm asking you to do is to do a mitzvah to bring one of the most significant shidduchim into being. And, as Potiphera proved to Yosef in the stars, that the family of Potiphera and the family of Yosef were meant for each other. So, when, the, when all of the attempts at Yosef, let's do an Aveira together, failed, so she changed her tactic and she said, it's, gonna be, it's a mitzvah. Now, <clears throat> never mind that the stars didn't say specifically who it was that Yosef was supposed to marry. It was somebody in Potiphar's family. Was it the wife that was married and therefore an adulterous act or the unmarried daughter? Well, Aisha's Potiphera, because she wanted to live with Yosef, interpreted that it meant her. While in fact it didn't mean her. It meant her daughter, Asnas. But, you know, that's, a, that's just commentary. That's commentary. So she made her commentary. It means me. It doesn't mean my daughter. In any case, this is the onslaught that Yosef has to deal with. This is what Yosef is dealing with. <coughs> now, <coughs> the Torah tells us that Aishas Potiphar was almost successful. She was almost successful. One day she made up a scheme. It was a day that everybody was going off to church. She played sick because she knew that the Jew boy Yosef wouldn't be going to church either. And she figured if she would have Yosef quietly in the house all by herself, she would be able to create the environment and the atmosphere to finally convince Yosef. And she almost did. But a number of things happened that prevented Yosef in the last moment from living with Aishas Potiphera. A few things happened. And I'd like to discuss the few things that happened because they are very, very interesting things. The first thing that happened was and Yosef didn't know what to make of it. But Aishas Potiphera had covered up the symbol of her religion that was on her headboard. So she had taken she had taken a blanket or a piece of cloth and she had covered up the Avodazar. Now Yosef didn't know what to make of it, but it, it seemed to Yosef that this was very peculiar for Aishas Potiphera to do. But he didn't know what to do with it yet, Yosef. And then a moment before he was willing to give in, the Madrish tells us that Rod must shall aviv. He saw the image of his father Bechalain. He saw the image of his father. He had a flash of his father's face. Now let's explain what's going on over here. Let's explain what's going on over here. Let's put ourselves in Yosef's position. Everybody over here is most probably scratching their head or wondering to themselves, big deal, Yosef didn't want to commit an adulterous act. For that, he's a big tzaddik. So let's put it into perspective for a moment. Let's put it into perspective. We have to keep in mind, and I'm going to say something that everybody here relates to in one way or the other. Yosef was rejected. Yosef was bounced out of his family. Yosef was trampled upon. Yose, they were discussing over Yosef if he should be murdered or thrown into a pit, and he was thrown into a pit, or go down to Egypt. And he was sold in that dehumanizing way as a slave down to Egypt. He went down to Egypt. He's isolated from his family. Psychologically, 
Yosef could, set, could have said to himself the following thing. I don't want to have any part of my family anymore. Who needs them? They rejected me. They treated me like a piece of dirt. Who needs them? And maybe even a little tinge of rebellion and revenge. Who knows about me? Who cares that I'm here? What difference does it make what I do anymore? Does anybody care about me? Will anybody know if I do anything wrong? Does anybody care to know if I'll do anything wrong? You have to keep these factors in mind that psychologically and emotionally he could have rationalized his behavior because he was given a rotten, shaken life. Put into that also that he lived in an environment that would have made the sexual revolution look like child's play. Everything around him was totally morally demoralized, completely. So the environment begged it. He had everything that he could have possibly wanted. He was this handsome guy in Egypt. He had risen to power. He had gained acceptance and pride in Egypt that he had never gained in his house. Why not? Drop everything. Cut away from your past. Your past only gave you miserable memories. Start life again. Somebody's running after you. You should feel great about it. This is part of the psychology. And this is why it was so important that the picture of his father came to him in the window. Now I must tell you that Yosef looked, the Medrash tells us, identical to his father. Identical to his father. So when he saw his father's picture in the window, he saw the image of his father in the window, it meant a few things. First of all, it said, Yosef, don't cut yourself away from the family. You are connected to your family. Yosef, you're looking into the window and you're seeing your father's face, but besides seeing your father's face, you're seeing your own face in the window. You are your father. You are the next generation from your father. Don't ruin it. Don't destroy it. You're carrying on the links in the chain. What you're about to get involved in is going to destroy your link in the chain. This is some of what came to Yosef. He began interpreting it. And then he remembered the truth that he had learned from Yaakov. Yaakov was the symbol of truth. And Yaakov began asking himself, I deserve this fling. But in truth, is this a truthful act? Is it a consistent act with everything that I was reared with? Yaakov was a symbolism of Emmas as well. And now, all of a sudden, something hit Yaakov. And Yaakov asked, not Yaakov, Yosef. Something hit Yosef. He turned to Aishas Potiphar and he asks Aishas Potiphar, why did you cover up the idol? So Aishas Potiphar said, because I don't want my God to see what I'm doing now. It's a little bit embarrassing. So ya Yosef said to himself, and what's with my God? There are no blankets in the world that I can take to cover up his face. He'll see what I'm doing no matter what. All of a sudden, truth is beginning to filter through into the arguments. And then Yosef begins asking himself a question, how can it be a mitzvah if it's an adulterous act? And even in Noahide law, everybody was required to keep the laws of morality that forbade adultery. That's the picture of his father. Now, let's go further. The Medrash says that's not the only thing that he saw 
But he also saw, right after he saw the picture of his father, he saw the picture of his mother in the window. Rachel. What did the mother figure, what did the picture of mother signify to Yosef? I'll explain it. But the figure of Rachel in the window after Yaakov is what helped Yosef turn away from Ashish Potipharah. How do I know it? That was the clincher. That was the straw. How do I know it? Because Yosef was later asked how he had the strength to be able to resist the temptation at that moment. And you know what he said? He said the following words, Shtikusa de'ime amdali, the quietness of my mother earlier in her life given over to me is what helped me. What does this mean? So let me explain. On the night that Rachel was supposed to marry Yaakov, Laban was working as the swindler that he was to put Leah in Rachel's place. Leah was to impersonate Rachel, and on the night of the wedding, Laban put Leah in the place of Rachel. Now, Rachel knew that his fa- her father was a swindler, and Yaakov knew that Laban was a swindler, and they fo- therefore they had made up secret codes that only they two knew, so that even if there would be an impersonation made, they would be able to catch it. And what happened? As Lovin is pushing Leah into the marriage with Yaakov, impersonated as Rachel, Rachel is watching how Leah is going to get caught, because Leah doesn't have the codes. So Rachel at that moment thought to herself, Yaakov is my husband. Yaakov is the person that I want to live my life with. But Leah is going in, and Leah is going to be terribly embarrassed when she's caught. She might even be cursed, and who knows what else done to her, but the shame will be something unbelievable. How can I let that happen? So even though I'm right, if I would stand my ground and let her get caught, but it hurts me that she's going to get hurt. And therefore, Rachel gave over the codes to Leah. Did she say a peeps? Did she say anything? Did she complain? Or was she completely quiet? Rachel was completely quiet. So Yosef said, the quietness of my mother at that moment bred into me the ability to be able to hold back my feelings as well. Now, I want to tell you something which is very interesting. I'd like to share with you something which is phenomenal. When the Jews went into exile, (coughs) a number of years after the Jews went into exile, the soul of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses, each one individually, came before God and prayed, take my children out of exile. So God said, oh yeah, why? So Abraham said, what do you mean, why? I fought for the oneness of God and I was willing to jump into a fire for you of the belief in you and I was willing to give my son's life for you. I think I've got enough merit to ask that my children should be taken out of exile and God answered nothing. And Yitzhak came before God and said, take my children out of Gullus. I was willing to stretch out my neck and give my life for you. And yet God didn't answer. And Jacob said, I raised 12 children and I dealt with crisis after crisis in my life because I was faithful to you. Take my children out of exile. And God didn't listen. 
and Moses came before God and said, take my children out of exile. I muttered with them for 40 years. I had hell with them for 40 years. I taught them a Torah. Take my children out of Golis in the merit of what I did. And God didn't answer. And then the Medrash says, Rachel jumped up on her feet, which is a figure of speech. It means that her neshama couldn't tolerate what was going on. And she stood before God and she said to God the following thing. She said, you know that on the night that I was supposed to marry Yaakov, who was rightfully mine, I gave the codes to my sister so that she should not be hurt. Who was right? I was right in, 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 in standing my ground and, and letting her get caught. But I didn't because it bothered me. So I contained all of my, the feelings that I had as a woman and I contained all of my feelings as a spiritual woman and I forgoed everything that was rightfully mine that night. And you, God, who are more than human, you can't forgo your anger of your people? That was Rachel's prayer. And God said to Rachel, Stop crying, Rachel, because your prayer, I will listen to you. And it will be your prayer that will take the Jewish people out of exile. So this, pra- this, this act of Rachel is something which is very, very special. But, and when Yosef looks at his test with Aishas Potiphar and says, What helped me? Yosef said, because there was something in me that comes from my mother Rachel. What was it? The quietness of my mother helped me. The quietness of my mother. Now, what is that supposed to mean? So I'd like to explain. I'd like to explain. The house of Yaakov is a fire. The house of Yosef is the sparks of the fire. And the house of, of Esav is hay. So the Shalom HaKadosh explains the following thing. What does, what does an Esh constitute? What does a fire constitute? So the Shalom says that the word Esh comes from two words. The Aleph of Esh is Emes. And the Shin of Esh is Shalom. What creates the fire of Yaakov? Ms and Shalom together. Ms and Shalom together is what creates the house of Yaakov. Now, what does this mean? What this means is as follows. There, an indispensable quality of the house of Yaakov is honesty, truth, consistency, straightforwardness, no warped ideas, Ms. But is Ms the whole story? No. Beyond Emes, there's something else. Beyond Emes, there is also a commitment to, to Shalom, to peace. In other words, that besides a person fighting for that which is Emes, he has to work to do it within a context of Shalom, to do it within a context of peace. Those that say that since I am in the right, I don't care what's in front of me, I'll mow it down and I'll destroy it, Come hell or high water, I'm coming with the banner of truth, so I don't care what's in my way, I'll just destroy it indiscriminately, is not true. On the other hand, the person that says, I'm coming under the banner of peace, so I will compromise every value of truth, that's also wrong. 
The greatness of the house of Yaakov is because they fight for Emes within the discipline and the dignity of Shalom. It's both together. Now, Yaakov himself excelled in Emes. That was Yaakov's contribution to the house of Yaakov. But who do you think contributed the aspect of Shalom? Rachel. Because Rachel was the one that on the night that she was supposed to wed Yaakov said that my sister will be so hurt my sister won't be able to live another normal day in her life once she's caught. How can I let that go on? So even though the Emmis is with me, the truth is with me and let her get caught. But I don't want that because that will create such disharmony and such hatred between Yaakov and Leah. I don't want that to happen. So what did Rachel do? Rachel was willing to forgo a level of Emmis for the sake of Shalom. Now, where did this shine through? Where did this shine through in, in, in Yosef? Let's look. When Aisha's Potiphar was in the middle of her heated seduction of Yosef, let's see how Yosef combated her arguments. So most probably everybody in this room would think that he combated the argument in the following way. Aisha's Potiphar, you're a married woman. Okay, for me to live with you... Slice it whichever way you like. It's an adulterous act. An adulterous act is an Aveira. I don't want to be a Balaveira. I don't want to be a wicked person. I don't want to be an adulterous person. I'm a moral person. That's not what Yosef said. Look what Yosef said to Aisha's Potiphar. You know what Yosef said to Aisha's Potiphar? Yosef said the following thing. I came into this home at the bottom. And I rose to the top. And your husband was so sensitive to my needs and was so good to me and trusted me and was so nice with me and gave me everything. Would it be fair to him? Would it be nice to him after everything that he did for me that I should treat him in this way to go off with his wife? After Yosef said all of those arguments, then Yosef said, and besides, one minute, an afterthought, and I'll also be sinning against God. But in the arguments that Yosef had, what got kept Yosef in, in, in focus here? What kept Yosef in focus here was the sensitivity of Shalom. The sensitivity that even with Emes, you also have to go with Shalom. There has to be a commitment to peace at the same time. And that's, that's what finds itself in the argument of, of Yosef. So what does... And, and so what does... Yaakov and Rachel together represent Emes and Shalom together. And where does the Emes and Shalom show itself? In the realities of this world, the stark realities of this world, it shows itself in the, in the fire shooting out under the challenges that Yosef was presented with. He saw the image of his father that told him Emes, he saw the image of his mother that told him Shalom. And between Emes and Shalom, the person has all of the armaments that he needs to confront even the darkest moments of his, of his life in the darkest places in the world, in Egypt. It's the Emes and the Shalom together that create it. Now, Yaakov had a lot of Emes in his life, but Yaakov was up there in the levels of Emes of theology and philosophy. But was Yaakov ever presented in his life with taking the truth and the peace 
that he had learnt, and living with the daily the, the realities of daily life, the grubby stuff of life, and apply to that the exalted Emes and the exalted Shalom. No, Yaakov didn't have that, and that's why Yaakov's not a pillar of the world. Yosef becomes the fire translated into energy, into the sparks that can go out and can make a difference in the world and to com- combat what's going on in the world. Yosef was in, Yaakov was in some kind of a, a theological stoic tower someplace. But had he ever translated those spiritual energies into the world of the grub, into the world of the coarseness of an Egypt and the darkness of an Egypt, that was Yosef. That was Yosef and to a certain extent all of the tribes had to do that. They are the spreading out. They are the branching of the energies of the forefathers into the reality of the world. Not on some theoretical level, but on the levels of the world. Now, the same way that Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov created chesed, gvur, and emes, loving kindness, discipline, and truth. And that's why they're forefathers, because we need those attributes to, to, to be who we are. Yosef is also a forefather and if you'll ask me what, is, what was his contribution as a forefather, his contribution as a forefather was survival. The techniques of taking all of the spiritual greatness of Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov and surviving in the darkest of places is the contribution that Avram, Yosef made to the Jewish people. And that's why Yosef is also considered a father. That's where Yosef becomes a father because he translated the energies of Emes and Shalom into the realities of life. And if he translates them into the realities of life, then the Jews have survival. A palace with one, two, or three pillars won't stand the, the, wind, the winds that blow. But if it stands on twelve pillars, it will stand. And Yosef was a major pillar in terms of the Emes and the Shalom. Now, Let's explain, let's go a little bit deeper in what's going on here. Let's go a little bit deeper. Avram developed one attribute. Yitzhak developed a second attribute. Yaakov developed another, a third attribute. We are told that once Yaakov came around, he had completed everything that within the spiritual framework of, of, uh, of the spiritual man was necessary to create. And therefore... Yaakov brought into this world 12 children that were all very, very special. Avram had a Yishmael. Yitzhak had an Esav. But Yaakov already reached the completion of the spiritual framework and therefore the children that he brought into the world, none of them were rejected from the lineage that became the Jewish people, like Avram and Yitzhak. Okay? So, the way we would say it is that Yaakov arrived. He arrived. He completed. In fact, the, med- the Medrash tells it to us, Mitaso Shlema, his bed was perfect. This is a, a figurative way of saying it. Mitaso Shlema. So one would think for a moment, no, if Yaakov already finished the spiritual framework, so the Yetzirah has lost. The negative inclination has lost. Why? Because the framework has been established. It's been perfected. Nonsense. Because there was one test now that would have threatened everything. Why? Because after Yaakov, God understood that the only way that the world would be able to have proper foundations of what they did was that everything that Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov developed had to be broken into 12 specialties. 
and each one of the tribes would develop one particular specialty from that pool that was developed from Avram Yitzhak and Yaakov. That's how great Avram and Yitzhak and Yaakov were, that in order to handle it in the world, it had to be broken into 12 specialties, just like medicine is broken into thousands of specialties. The spiritual framework that Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov established had to be broken into 12 specialties. So you would think, ah, Yaakov has created his whole, you know, just like the, these, uh, what do they call these medical groups, and under one roof you can get any kind of a specialty. So one would think that Yaakov created his medical group, his, spe- his, his building. There's still one threat. You know what the one threat is? The one threat is that if the 12 parts don't work with each other, you're in lots of trouble. If you have 12 specialists and everybody is only interested in their specialty and doesn't have the broadness and the ability to understand the other 11 specialties, so then you destroy, you become, you destroy everything that have, has ever been built from within. Everything becomes destroyed from within. And let me point something out. In history... I think more people were more murdered under the banner of people that thought that they were right than otherwise. So let's take the scenario of Yaakov's 12 children. Each one had a spiritual, uh, a spiritual specialty. So was every one of them MS? Was every one of them from where they were coming from a truthful perspective? Yeah. Uh, Yeruven saw it one way and it was truthful from his spiritual perspective. Shimon saw it his way from his perspective. So they were all right. When everybody is right and you get them all under one roof, you've got to be very hopeful that because they feel that they're right, that they don't destroy everything around them under the banner of being right. Right? <laughs> now, that's the function of Yosef. Since Yosef personified, Yosef was the product of Emes and Shalom together. Since Yosef was the product of a Yaakov that represented Emes and a Rachel that represented Shalom, so who would be the most equipped from all of Yaakov's children to be able to guarantee the unity of the of the of the twelve? Yosef. If there's Yosef, we know that there's Emes. So Yosef will understand everybody's perspective truthfully. But nevertheless, he also has that discipline of Shalom at the same time. He has the discipline of peace. So Yaakov looked to Yosef to be the leader in terms of unifying it. So therefore, if Yosef is here, then my 12 children are here. And if Yosef is not here, I don't have anything. And we have to know this, that this is true in life. If we don't have peace, we don't have anything. We can have riches, and we can have wisdom, and we can have uh, political clout, and we can have everything. You know, you can make a list of everything that you have. But ask any decent, mature human being if he doesn't have shalom in his house, if he doesn't have peace in his house, he's got nothing. There's nothing because if there's no peace, then the person is torn into pieces, and he doesn't have anything. And that's what Yaakov said. Yaakov said, if Yosef is gone, my family is gone. Why did I lose the, the, the unifying force. Why did I lose the Shalom? If I lost the Shalom, maybe it was because I wasn't worthy. Maybe I was missing within myself the Shalom. And that's why I, didn't tra- I couldn't transmit it to my children. And that's why my children lost the Yosef that would have created the Shalom. So Yaakov looked to himself and Yaakov said, Well, if I didn't make it happen, maybe I didn't have the Shalom inside of me. 
Of course, if I had it inside of me, then I would have been able to communicate it. And that's also something which is very important. You know, when, when couples fight, and when couples have all kinds of problems, okay, but if a person inside wants shalom, and is desirous of peace, and tries to, tries to work towards peace, and lives in a way of peace, so that helps in the relationship. The first thing in counseling that you have to deal with when people are fighting with each other is that you have to get the aggression away. The idea that you're fighting me and I'm fighting you and you put up your defenses and you put up your dukes and let's see how many things you can dredge out of the past and let me see how much I can dredge out of the past. That whole formula is nonsense. That whole formula is garbage. That's not what makes marriages. Who's going to come out with the most arguments on his side? So he's right and the other one is wrong and that's how the shalom is created. No, no shalom is created that way. Shalom is created because of the people hate disharmony. Shalom is created because we know that all of the blessing lies in unity and all of the curses lie in disunity. And when people pain at disunity and, and they thrive in unity and they can transmit that kind of a feeling, then there's a hope that a harmony can be built. <clears throat> now, Yosef had dreams. Yosef had dreams. Yosef had a dream that there was 11, 11 bundles of wheat that were bowing down to him. He had a dream that the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to him. Those were prophetic visions. They weren't dreams of an egomaniac. They were prophetic visions. They were teaching Yosef that what his role was. His role was the role of a, the leader to unify his people, his brothers. The only trouble was that at the point that Yosef saw those prophetic visions, they weren't true of the present. They were true of his future. That was his potential. At this point, had he ascended to the level of being a melech? Had he ascended to the level of being this king? Not yet. When did he ascend to the level? When he went down to Mitzrayim. And he had to become a king and a leader in his own life and resist Ashes Potiphera after he became a king in his own life. And he was able to unify all of the kochos that Hashem gave him in his own life. And he didn't allow them to, to be dissipated into the Mishagas. He became a melech internally within himself. God said, you prove that you're a leader in yourself, then you can become a leader over the people. And if you look at the Chumash, it's very clear. After Yosef's test with Ashes Potiphera, that's when the circumstances begin to unfold and his brothers are slowly coming down to Egypt and slowly things are working that they're going to come back together again. Not before. Why? Because even though that was Yosef's potential, but he wasn't there yet. So since he wasn't there yet, when his brothers viewed him, you know what his brothers viewed him as? His brothers viewed him as an egomaniac. They saw, who are you? Well, why are you a hotshot? Who are you to go to Yaakov and talk about our spiritual development? Who, who made you the leader? Who made you the person that you think you are? And the truth of the matter was, that they had a right to complain at that point because Yosef didn't represent it. The best proof of it was that his criticisms created disharmony instead of harmony. Whenever he criticized his brothers, it made more disharmony than instead of harmony. Why? Because he yet wasn't the leader within himself. Okay? We can't impress upon other people peace if we are inside an inner turmoil. 
and if inside we are torn in, in 15 different pieces. We can't impress peace. We can't make any kind of a semel of peace to anybody else unless that radiates from within ourselves as well. <coughs> so that's what's going on. This is what's going on over here in, in the relationship of Yosef to his brothers. Now, <coughs> from his, his brother's perspective, from his brother's perspective, you know what they were concerned with? Avram had two children, Yishmael and Yitzchak. Yishmael was bounced out. Yitzchak had two children. Esav was bounced out. Yaakov is having 12 children and Yosef is taking this leadership role and, and tattling on his brothers. You know what the brothers, the brothers were afraid of? That history would repeat itself for the third time. And the same way that Avram made a decision, Yishmael, you're out. And Yitzhak made a decision, Esav, you're out. His bro the brothers of Yosef were very much afraid that what Yosef was vying for was for the position of the next link in the chain and you're out. So they saw Yosef as a threat to their existence, maybe not physically, but certainly spiritually, in terms of who they were and what they had to contribute. Definitely. And therefore they witnessed him as the most dangerous person around. They were threatening his existence. Now, as I mentioned before, jealousy has a basis. When they looked at Yosef and they were afraid that Yosef would become the next link in the chain and they weren't on the same level and they might be pushed out, it was because Yosef was a father. He wasn't a child. He had the spiritual contribution to make of that of the father. So from where they were looking, not knowing Yosef's motivations and not knowing that he was acting from a potential that wasn't yet developed, they saw Yosef as a father, another link in the chain as, as strong and as equivalent as Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. So who says that Yosef isn't the fourth link in the chain and we're all out? And they felt it was unfair and they felt that, they, he was, he was dis, that Yosef was out to destroy their lives spiritually and therefore they went and they judged him as severely as they did. And the best they can do is get rid of the danger. Get him out of here. Get, sell him down to Egypt. Now, who was the only one that stood up for Yosef? Reuven. And I'm going to tell you why. And not because he was the firstborn and he'd get clobbered over the head. I'll tell you why. The Medrash tells us why Reuven stood up for him. Because, you know, Reuven suffered from something terribly in his life. He had committed a terrible crime on his level. He had taken... The, he had taken a bed and transferred it from one tent to the other tent after Rachel's death as if to say to his father Yaakov now that Rachel is dead I want you to give all of your attention to my mother now right, wrong but one thing is for sure it was inappropriate for Reuben as a son to make that statement and the Torah says that it was so inappropriate that the Torah records it as if Reuben lived with Yaakov's wife that's the way the Torah sees it. It was so inappropriate and it was so immodest. That the Torah says that on Reuven's level, it was so immodest that it was like he lived with, his, with Yaakov's wife. That's the way the Torah records it. And for the rest of Reuven's life, Reuven was doing tshuva. According to one opinion, you know where Reuven was when they sold Yosef down to Mitzrayim? He was sitting and crying and repenting for what he had done. It was a life process of tshuva. Excuse me? The bed that he had removed. You mean Rachel? Leah was his <coughs> No, he hadn't moved Leah's. He had the Shivchas 
In other words, Bila, what, no, not Bila, Zilpa. Uh, okay, I have to look which one. But the second bed, he wanted to move out. In other words, because this was a Rachel Shifcha and now Rachel wasn't here, so he didn't want, so he didn't want that the attention should be to that side of, of the family at all. Okay, now, what, what's, now listen what's going on over here. Now, Reuben was very concerned after this that he was going to be excluded from the lineage because he had destroyed that which he could have spiritually contributed by that act. And he didn't know that if after he does tshuva, will he get it back, won't he get it back. But then something very peculiar happened to Reuben. You know what happened? Yosef comes up with two dreams. And in both dreams, Reuben is included. Reuben is included in the dream with the eleven bundles. Reuben is included in the dream with the eleven stars. Now, this is not the case of one hand washes the other. If you support me and you say that I can, so I'll support you. That's not what's going on. You know what's going on over here? The following. What did the brothers think? The brothers saw, thought the following. What does Yosef think about all day long? He's an egomaniac. And all he's thinking about all day long is how he's going to be able to conquer. And that's why when he goes to sleep, he has dreams of what he thinks about all day long. So Reuben says to himself the following thing. If that would be the nature of his dreams at night, certainly I should have been the first to be eliminated from Yosef's thoughts. Because during the day, what would Yosef think to himself? Reuben, I don't have to worry about. Because Reuben, the Torah says, he lived with his, his father's wife. 